0: Bonjour. I'm Terence collector your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. Quick question before we get started. Uh, since you're, I, I've been to Brooklyn College. I graduated uh, Andrews Huddy Junior High School in 1961 in the auditorium. After which we went to Wolfie's for lunch. Now I yes. presume the Wolfie's is gone.
1: Long gone, unfortunately
0: and it, it is now what a part of the campus
1: no it's a mcdonald's
0: no yes. it, it was enormous it was enormous. Like the size of madison square garden
1: it was enormous it's now all of that space is now mcdonald's
0: interesting i noticed you've acquired a brooklyn accent so you moved from since you moved to the east coast i hope not <laughs> <laughs> anyway so the uh the, the book is hollywood and the 50s of the 50s, movies of the 50s, Um, uh, 50s were a turbulent time for the big Hollywood studios television was eroding an audience that at one time had been 85 million weekly down to 60 million in 1950. We tried Cinerama, which you talk about, Cinemascope, so forth. Uh, But I I think there were two uh, things that set the table for the 50s. One would be, uh, which you probably allude to in your book on film noir, Dark on the Screen, was the aftermath of of the war in films like uh, Crossfire and your buddy Otto the Terrible in films like Laura and later Anatomy for Murder. And of course, the uh, Paramount Decree, which completely changed everything. Why don't we begin by talking a little bit about the films that I just mentioned, that represented the beginning of a, a way of telling stories that was not available to the audience in the early 40s, because the audience had not had not suffered. These guys did, were not in in the war. Didn't come back. Or you, you couldn't uh, just smile and sing in the rain or whatever.
1: No, that 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 that's a very good point actually. And it was it was critics in France, where where you are in Paris, mm-hmm. who noted.
0: So after, Nico uh, something. I forget his last name.
1: Yes, uh, in in the book on film war. But it was was Parisian critics who hadn't seen American films during the war years. Mm -hmm. And then they were released in a group after the war. And vigilant French critics noted there's a new dark strain in these films that is at odds with the usual affirmation and optimism of the Hollywood cinema. Sure. And they called that Film noir, and of course, it's a name that stuck. It didn't catch on in America right away, but decades later, it's used everywhere now.
0: What's well, L- made a career by. for Eddie Muller?
1: Yes, that right, yeah. exactly. No, it's become it's become a kind of catchphrase, and it's a very popular style for, in film festivals all over the country. But it was the Parisian critics who noticed it. it and and I think your point is well taken. In a way, they're war films. Mm-hmm. They're not directly about the war, but they reflect the sensibility of a country in wartime, a country that hadn't been in war and then was uh, reluctantly in in war. And though, and I think films reflect what's going on in the culture, and that's a very good case. At a, at a deeper level, they're not war films per se.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think it's sensibility, just as you mentioned they are. They're war well, films. if
0: you look at, I mean, go back to uh, Willie Weiler you know uh, the the best years of our lives which ostensibly i think when i was a kid in brooklyn watching it on tv i didn't get quite the depth that is there but i've watched it recently and it it holds up it's very oh. uh it never really even even with the guy even with the guy with the hooks and a, a russell um Harold uh, russell yeah. Uh, it never becomes trickly. It never, it never stoops no. to that. There's a great respect for the people. Uh, and in, in a sense, talking to guys like him who had lost a, a leg or an arm or God knows what in that, that horrible conflict and, and the difficulty of trying to find a way to reintegrate into a culture that had completely changed in your absence. Tell me briefly about that film.
1: Well, that's, 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 that's a, a great document of, america right after the war it's become the you know the essential text it's a terrific film and for the reasons you say it never descends into easy sentimentality it it rises above that
0: yeah and 70 years later it still it still is viable in many levels and then you know in 1947 uh we had the the, the two uh, anti semitism films we had gentlemen uh, gentlemen's agreement of which uh, billy Wilder had said after seeing it that what did you learn from this so well You you better be nice to Jews because they may turn out to be Gentiles. Uh, What I would call that kind of, you know, is Ilya Kazan, a little bit light, although uh, John Garfield stepped to the plate vigorously for that film. But Crossfire is the dynamo uh, with the three Roberts. Uh, Originally, it was, I guess, it dealt with a homosexual and they transferred it. Sam Levine became Sammy. Talk a little bit about, because we're also looking at anti-Semitism as certainly as it existed and kept us out of the war until we had no choice, uh, yeah. and uh, and then at that point, you know, if you were like us, you weren't going to be hired by Procter & Gamble with our names. Um, talk about the impact on that film today, and how it resonated when it first came out.
1: Well, um, you, you, you talk about those two films. The Hollywood moguls were against making those films, mm-hmm. because they didn't want to call attention to their own Jewish identities, because they felt they'd assimilated and worked hard to have their place in America, and they didn't want to be associated with a group of people who who had been victimized during the Mm -hmm. war. There was a terrific uh, push against any films on Jewish subjects Mm -hmm. in the Hollywood Golden Age. And a gentleman's agreement was made under the aegis of Daryl Zanuck, a Gentile mogul, one of the very few. And the Jewish moguls went to him and said, please don't make this film. It calls attention to a subject we don't want talked about, and he made it. But I think you called it right. It's a very tame film. It mm-hmm. takes place after the war. There's not one mention of the Holocaust or the right. war. It's about well,
0: a, a yeah exactly. a gentile
1: journalist who is masquerading as a Jew and who can't get in to a fancy restricted hotel. It's not about the, the, the recent tragedy. No, it's, it's very, a, it's very light. A great avoidance.
0: Well, you know, body, body and soul. Well. Anne Revere alludes to our pe- what's happening to our people, but that was Abe Polanski and Robert Rossen, which jumps exactly. forward to to UAC, and uh, again, I it's maybe a third element in my preliminary remarks that began to affect what happened in the uh, in the early fifties. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about UAC and its impact on on filmmaking and and filmmakers. Well,
1: a terrific impact because. Um, when Hollywood was investigated by HUAC for supposed communist infiltration, the, the moguls got scared and they imposed a blacklist in 1947. And that had a huge influence for about the next 10 years of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. They didn't want communists on their payroll. Most of the moguls, unlike today's Hollywood, were Republicans and conservatives. Mm-hmm. It was a different era. you know. They different kind of Republicans than today's Republicans, but nonetheless, they were a conservative group.
0: Everett Dirks Dirksen, Republicans. It, well, and yeah, in a sense, yeah.
1: yeah. But they, they, they were, the Hollywood moguls were kings of their own domains. But when they were visited by Washington, they were subservient. They felt Washington was a greater power than they were. And they wanted to cooperate with the government. They, in fear, they imposed a blacklist. And we can now stand back and criticize it and say, mm-hmm. how, how terrible to prevent people being hired because of political beliefs, but they felt they had to at the time. And I do go into a lot, I go into a lot of that background in the book, mm-hmm. trying to understand their point
0: of view. Well, I think Neil Gabler wrote a book, uh, you know, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. And, and I I, I, I kind of got what you sense, you know, here these guys had uh, escaped the shtetl, become millionaires, moguls, influencers throughout America. And and then all of a sudden, they're back in the shtetl again. They're just poor Jews, uh, submitting to the, coast, the Cossacks of, uh, of Washington, and I—that I, was very uh, unnerving. Uh, you know, I feel you know terrible for what they did. Although there were, you know, cases. Uh, Jack Warner and the Confessions of a Nazi Spy uh, made an effort. But you mentioned Zanuck. Zanuck made a film in 1934 called The House of Rothschild, which uh, written by Nunnally Johnson, which dealt with anti-Semitism. So here you have a non-Jew. Stepping to the plate and trying to deal with the subject as more than once, time and, the,
1: and the Jewish moguls really resisted that subject. And in my period in the fifties, there are hardly any Jewish subjects. Mm-hmm. The, the main one at the end of the decade was Diary of Anne Frank, right? Made by a righteous Gentile, George Stevens. George Stevens, All unlikely right. at the time that a Jewish filmmaker or a Jewish studio mm-hmm. and Fox was not that would have <laughs> would have. Would have produced that film.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, kind of amazing. Well, on, on, a, on a somewhat lighter subject, you grew up in L.A., right? I did. You did. Yeah. So you, this was going on when you. Well, we're not that far apart, Nate. She's a couple of years older than me, so this was happening when you were there. But you talk about Cinerama. Uh, I, you know, we're we're living in a world now where Hollywood is under uh, trying to figure out who they are. You know, are they streamers? Are they? Will cinemas still exist? Is there? Is it viable for a theater to operate? So they're dealing with a lot of the things that they were frightened about, or not frightened in any other sense, but worried about. Uh, and so they find different techniques. Uh, you talked about the Cinerama experience. I, I saw the robe in CinemaScope. I, I think I was, I don't know, nine, eight or nine years old. You know, uh, Trying to find a way to distinguish the small screen. So talk about what was going on at that point and how you reacted to it then as a, uh, as a kid and how you react to it now in hindsight.
1: Uh, yeah, good, good question. To save itself, the industry really had to offer new kinds of movies. You couldn't do the same thing over and over again. And they thought a, a possible route to salvation was the new technologies. They didn't do Cinerama. Cinerama was outsiders. Mm-hmm. Cinerama was too huge for them. The investment was too large. So the studio stayed away from it. But they did jump on the 3D bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And then again at Fox under Zanuck and Spiros Corus, Cinemascope was CinemaScope.
2: introduced, mm-hmm.
1: and Cinemascope, which was the new widescreen ratio, was more manageable than Cinerama, which was a huge curved screen. So the wide uh, screen uh, uh, vista of um, of Cinemascope worked, and it changed the industry. And we're still looking at at widescreen films. Some people don't like widescreen. I think it's an elegant form when it's properly used. But well, la-
0: Lawrence of Arabia. But you know, but Fabulous. we, you know, but we could make a double indemnity on, on a small screen. I mean, not tiny screen, but on the old.
1: You don't. Aspect. You don't need cinema for everything, but for the right films, it's oh. a great enhancement, right? Sure.
0: Terrific. Well, I, I just recently rewatched it. Was actually, in French here, uh, Last of the Mohicans, a Michael Mann's film, which I had seen originally on the big screen, which is magisterial. Terrific. You know, and then when you watch it, Absolutely. you can still, because it's great acting, and but it's not the same experience. You felt Not you were, the same experience. Yeah.
1: And can you imagine seeing, whenever I'm in Paris, I, I would go immediately to the Rex en Grand Large, ah. mm-hmm. which is one of the great screens of the world. Sure, It's one of the great screens of the world. makes every film look better. and I, I love widescreen. Some people don't. I also like 3D, which was introduced in 52, but really by the end of so you're, 50 you're 50 a
0: Raymond Burr 50. fan, right? I am. I am. Indeed. <laughs> I am. Indeed. I mean, well, certainly from film Noir, but he was like the the gorilla in the, what was the name of the film? You know what I'm thinking of? Uh, a gorilla at large. Uh, it must be it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: that, that's a terrific film in 3D, <laughs> actually. <laughs> right. Uh, no, Anne Bancroft was actually the gorilla in that. But you, but go ahead. I'm sorry. 3D 3D didn't last very long. The moguls didn't. Uh, stick with it and audiences complained they didn't like having to wear glasses and they said some audiences said it gave them a headache or the projection projection was uneven but when it was properly projected 3d was terrific i'm a Is great there a fan film of that
0: comes to mind that you liked in 3d yes.
1: yes i'm introducing it in a program in a couple of weeks Hitchcock's style m for murder oh
0: okay which i was not aware that was done that way yeah
1: terrific in 3d but it came at the end of the cycle and in a lot of the first run engagements, it was shown flat because they had already given up on three D. They didn't. It, the only technology that lasted was cinemascope, which had offshoots like. Do you remember Todd A O? Todd a. o. of course. Division Technorama. Well, I guess uh, Todd A O. He must have. He must have shot
0: plus. around the world in eighty days in Todd a. I would. Suspect. That was Todd A O. Yeah, right. yeah my, that was my Todd A O. Todd. The, uh, you know, we 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 talk about. Uh, 3d and so forth it kind of leads me into sam Arkoff, uh samuel zachary Arkoff from uh, fort dodge iowa of all places uh who uh, said if you give me a great poster generally with a girl with, with a large set of breasts uh and fifty thousand dollars i'll i'll give you a big money maker and he had roger corman who never lost a nickel making movies they kind of started out in the drive-in business but they've they have survived and evolved and they were yes,
1: not. You're talk... I'm sorry? You're talking about American International.
0: It's, right, exactly.
1: Yes. They were the exploitation studio. And they they started a studio in the mid 50s at a time when studios were on the demise. And mm-hmm. two of them died Republic and RKO just disbanded. Sure. But these guys were enterprising schlockmeisters. They weren't making, well, mark. I would say the they King
0: brothers, the King that. brothers were schlockmeisters. These guys yes, were, they like were one step above the, uh, the schlock, but they, you know, if you go back and look at a film like the St. Valentine's day massacre, you know, Roger Corman's film, that is a damn good film.
1: That, that came later.
0: Right. That, right.
1: that was a later period. Oh, the but early the 50- period. Right. The early period, they made a, a drive-in double bills for the teenage audience, sure. which AIP exploited, they didn't realize, the industry didn't realize, wait a minute, teenagers with money to spend are a new demographic for us. Let's tailor films for them. Mm -hmm. AIP did that. Most of the films are junk, but they're interesting. I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage Frankenstein. Michael Landon? Michael Landon, rock, rock, rock. They exploited teenage fads, a hot rod girl, hot rod drag, drag strip girl. They repeated the formulas over and over again. And for about six years, they were, they were terrific, and they saved a lot of theaters. They yeah. were very smart guys.
0: You know, and a lot of guys, you know, uh, actors like Nicholson had done a lot of work with them, and, and, and directors as well, where who Roger Corman really gave them an opportunity uh, to work. So uh, he was guys a great got, mentor. the system wasn't there, but he was a great mentor.
1: And, he was a great mentor. Yeah. great he man really... he's still at it you know he's produced <laughs> more films than anybody else has he really in the history of movies hundreds and counting
0: yeah that was an, an amazing collaboration he was uh, yeah but those are the films I saw you know we had in in Brooklyn we go to the RKO Kenmore on Saturday to see the uh films you're talking about Sunday we went into the to the balcony of the Lowe's Kings uh, the Catholic girls oh. had just gotten through with the, uh, you know, apologizing for the behavior the previous week. We would have to watch the robe and Demetrius and the gladiator and all that. I don't know. I don't know if we went for the movies or for the girls, but we went. Yeah. You know, Friday and uh, Saturday yes. and Sunday. As you, as, uh, you but you're,
1: men- you're mentioning these great theaters in Brooklyn, which I know, which I yeah. knew. I saw movies at the Louis Kings. Well, what,
0: amaz- a, what, a, what a
1: pleasure to see a movie in that palace, right?
0: Astonishing Nowadays, place. for fifty cents. <laughs>
1: And yeah. for 50 cents for nowadays 50 just cents. these small shooting galleries
0: right well i think it goes back to the you know to the the 95 million that were watching movies every week uh it was it was a huge experience going out to the movies it was affordable uh you had uh, you know a picture a week arriving studios are putting out a lot of problems I and mean, some of it was schlocky but a lot of good stuff that came through that uh, through that system uh, leading up but let's get back a little bit to the to the 50s and what was beginning to change um I, I, you know, Billy Wilder, uh, I, I guess he bookended his career with Ninochka 39 that he wrote for Lubitsch and then Sunset Boulevard. Why don't we talk about Sunset Boulevard as a way of looking at how Hollywood, in this case, Billy Wilder, looked at Hollywood in the early 50s. What it represented? What did it come from? And perhaps foreshadowing what it would be.
1: Well, that, that's that's a key film. And again, it was a film that other locals didn't want to be made. Louis Mayer, when he saw uh, Sunset Boulevard, (laughs) said to Billy Wilder, you have bitten the hand that feeds you. You have made a nasty anti-Hollywood film, and Hollywood is your living. Shame on you. Uh, Louis Mayer didn't want that kind of image of Hollywood portrayed, and Billy Wilder was not afraid of sort of ripping the (laughs) the, the, the screen off and telling the truth. But that film was Hollywood's most bitter self-portrait. and it in in a way it took a, a a it took the veneer of beauty and glamour that was MGM's stock and trade. Mm-hmm. That
2: was a Paramount it, film, wasn't
1: it? That was a Paramount film. Right. But it was it was an anti-MGM film.
0: you, know, you so were very Paramount nice film, in, in describing it, the it, dialogue between Billy Wilder and Mr. Mr. Mayor. Uh, what what was said? We're not going to repeat. Yes. You know, on this on this screen.
1: No, we're not going to repeat.
0: Yeah, no, for I, a lot
1: I I I was polite about that. You're very polite. A, I was polite, but I, had, I have a soft feeling for Louis B. Mayer.
0: Oh, so I, was, I, he, I met Billy Wilder. I, I had an hour with Billy in his office. So, why do you have a soft spot for uh, for Mr. Mayer?
1: Uh, he ran what was called the Tiffany's of Hollywood, and he ran the studio according to his own aesthetic, mm-hmm. which may not be something everyone shared, but he said, We're in the business of making beautiful films about beautiful people. If you're not interested in doing that, this is the wrong place for you. But remember, at the beginning of the 50s, he was fired Mm -hmm. and he was replaced by Dory Sherry, who had a very different aesthetic. He wanted to make social message movies and dark films. When Mayer saw The Asphalt Jungle, 1950 film, which Dory Sherry had sponsored, Mayer was appalled. He said, I wouldn't walk across the street. To see a film like that it was too dark he did the shabby sets the not glamorous looking actors it was too downbeat for him he said that's not what my idea of movie going is but dory sherry's aesthetic prevailed and films in the 50s did tend to get darker despite the image of the 50s as the nelsons and and our father knows best.
0: Mm-hmm. It was a much
1: well, darker, more complicated period.
0: But I think, as we said at the very beginning, uh, his his aesthetic was pre-war. Uh, you couldn't live with that aesthetic going forward because the GIs couldn't no. buy into it. Uh, the women no. who had spent had been at home raising children for four years on their own uh, couldn't relate to it. Uh, it, it couldn't
1: relate the- to it. That, but that's why Mayor was relieved of his job. Sure, because the Board of Directors said he doesn't have the instinct for the post-war sensibility. Times have changed. Mm-hmm. We need a new approach. He's not the guy to lead us into this new world. He's I mean, not was the true. one. Go ahead. It I'm was sorry. true. Absolutely. It was true. He was Absolutely. the leader in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But after the war, he was old hat.
0: Yeah, there's a scene where, uh, I, I guess he's, uh, f- uh, Bill Holden is pitching Fred Clark, uh, and somehow uh, the baseball movie became a war movie like in about two and a half minutes it seemed to me to encapsulate what Hollywood was all about. (laughs) You know, the story, the writer, you know, it wasn't important. They are going to figure out a way to put this thing together and make money out of it.
1: And and to to tailor a film that the post-war audience would want. And that was a new audience. Absolutely. A new audience. They'd been through the war. They had a different perspective. They needed new kinds of entertainment. And it was the business of the studios to find that new type of entertainment. And amazingly, under threat of exposure you know, expulsion and and uh, of extinction, the studios re- reinvented themselves. And the fifties are a much more interesting and varied period. That's why I wrote the book. Because my period. It's a
0: great, well, it's a period. I,
1: to... I love the period. Yeah, I love the period, and I wanted to to take away some of the cobwebs about the stereotype notion of the fifties.
0: Well, I think it's our childhood, you know, I mean, in our case, you know, that uh, these are the things that we lived through. The, you know, the, each of these movies uh, had some, uh, for example, I'm gonna bounce around a little bit, but also somewhat of an independent film, the uh, uh, Lancaster Heck Group. With Ernest Lehman, uh, who made Sweet Smell of Success, which very to me is probably Tony Tony Curtis's best work ever. Uh, apart ever. from, I'm going to say, you know, the great the great comedy that he made with uh, with Billy Wilder. But what what a piece of work he was in that film! What a nasty piece of work!
1: Yeah, not true. His best part ever, for sure.
0: And it mm. represented, you know, I mean, the, the power of a Walter Winchell who's who Lancaster's impersonating the. The enormous amount of power that these guys had over everyone's life, and that—that's
1: speak of a dark film. That's a dark film, but it was made at United Artists, mm-hmm. which allowed for independent filmmakers to have much more freedom than at the at the other studios. And so the Heck Lancaster team was pretty free to do what they wanted. And they made some very ambitious films under the United Artists banner.
0: Well, let's go back to Arthur Crimm and Robert Benjamin, who you write about it. And let's tell the audience what United Artists was and and how, uh, well, <laughs> we got to go back. we talked about, why don't we do, do the Paramount Decree and then segue, be a more yes. natural segue. What was the Paramount Decree? And again, we're talking the end, late 40s, prior, the first decree, before we get into your period in the 50s.
1: Yeah, that 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 had an enormous influence on 50s Hollywood. The Paramount Decree was a judgment that the old Hollywood studio system was in restraint of trade. Mm-hmm. They were a monopoly because they produced their films, they distributed their films, and they exhibited their films in their own chain of theaters. To stay in business, they had to sell off their theaters. So Paramount could no longer book their own product into the chain of Paramount Theatres. And that opened a way for independents to come into the first-run houses and gave them a fair shot. So it began to erode the studio system. So more and more in the 50s, there was the pattern of independents working for a major studio, but having a different relationship to the studio than contract players. It was the beginning of the end of the studio system. It took uh, a long time. mm -hmm. Well, Kriman
0: and uh, Benjamin, as you described, were lawyers. Talk about what they did, how they saw the playing field, and how they altered it.
1: They they saw an opportunity for a new kind of production model, and they took United Artists, which was a dying uh, company at that time, from its two surviving uh, directors, Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin, who were great filmmakers but not good studio managers. Mm -hmm. It was dying. So they took it away from them. Uh, The studio was worth nothing. And they instituted a model where independents could come and make one film. They had almost total freedom. uh, If they worked within a certain budget, there was no studio upkeep to maintain. They could, they were open to all kinds of different kinds of movies. For instance, the, crown, the jewel in the crown is *Knight of the Hunter, if you know that mm-hmm. Charles Law masterpiece. That was made at United Artists by an independent filmmaker named Paul Gregory. So they changed the business model, Prim and Benjamin,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it became the model of the industry that we're still living under in the post-studio era. That's how films are made. The studios are not what they were.
0: At some level, I don't even know if they're still in the distribution business the way they were, they certainly were at that they, point distributors. They
1: were they were distributors, but mm-hmm. the model has changed completely. But Prim and Benjamin were the ones who changed that model. They were mm-hmm. the first architects of the new post studio Hollywood. It took twenty years <clears throat> for the old system to die off. It didn't really die off till the end of the sixties completely.
0: No yeah, I mentioned the RKO Kenwar in my neighborhood this again was an archaeo radio archaeo Keith, theater uh, yeah Orpheum uh, you know theater groups uh yeah it's and like, and every and every the, week
1: and the Kings showed MGM films and I think you said they the, the Robe opened to the yeah Kings. Well, yeah the
0: Rope was I you know, would, have been, it would have been Daryl Zanuck it would have been Fox the Rope. Yeah, that was at, Fox. At, at CinemaScope at the beginning uh, I just want to mention a couple of films and I want to get your uh some thoughts from you on different yes. films a uh, follow-up, I guess, to somewhat lighter, but also quite good, with uh, was "The Bad and the Beautiful," Vincente Minnelli's film, uh, primarily with uh, well, we're looking at Kirk Douglas, who uh, one of my favorites, and I guess Dick Powell is a little bit like Faulkner in um, in the film. Uh, another look at Hollywood.
1: Yes, that but that wouldn't have been made. That was made by MGM in the Sherry regime. Mm-hmm louis mayer would never have made such an anti-hollywood film yeah. ever because that it exposes all the warts it exposes all the the dark side of the film industry but it wouldn't have been made without the model of sunset boulevard mm-hmm. so there were a whole there were a series of exposés of, of the hollywood industry hollywood looks at itself through a dark lens and that's a good one You're right. yeah, what, what else comes thing. to your
0: mind because i i think you know billy set the template but billy I don't, Billy. I don't think Billy was really a cynic. He was more of a romantic and a real hard way of looking at life. This is a little, probably a little more digestible to the general audience, but at the same time, doesn't cut corners on what's being done. The fact that he sets up, you know, uh, Gilbert Roland to go out with uh, uh, Gloria Graham because he wants to get, you know, I mean, all this manipulation behind the scenes, and ultimately, they uh, they can't live without him. He's uh, he's a huge talent in their lives. If they think about it, were enhanced by by who he was.
1: Yes, but he, but he was also a poisonous man too. Oh, and the film. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He, he was he was a dark. He was an evil genius in a way. What we It it exposed the inner workings of the film industry in a way that, for instance, Louis B. Mayer would never have wanted. Of mm. course, that went on behind the scenes. It wasn't the public's business.
2: Right.
1: Exactly. This was. Exactly a more realistic uh, depiction and from a studio like MGM, mm-hmm. which under Mayer was musicals and comedies and Andy Hardy, you know, an, an idealized vision of Americana. I would say Louis B. Mayer's most typical film was Meet Me mm-hmm. in St. Louis. That yeah. film represented what he thought movie could be. An idealized vision of America, of the American family that never would have existed but an American Arcadia that he thought it was the business of movies to depict for the
0: public. Uh, one final film that I want to talk about, and then we I want to hear some thoughts from you, uh, uh, Mankiewicz, not Herman the uh, Joseph. All about Eve. I guess he was back to back Academy Awards for Best Film Director and, and Writer. Uh, Letter to Three Wives and, and then obviously uh, All About Eve. With the no, no one but George Sanders could be Addison Dewitt. <laughs> Dad, I mean, I, I think he, you know, maybe his suicide was a result. He could never have another role of that magnitude, uh, no, ever again.
1: He, he said he just got bored. He got yeah. bored. It was
0: time. There's nothing left to do. It was time, time, time to leave. But that's
1: a, that's a great film. 1950, All mm-hmm. About Eve. Hollywood's the the great film about the theater. 1950, Sunset Boulevard. Hollywood's greatest film about Hollywood. In the mm-hmm. same year, at the beginning of a decade that I'm celebrating in this book. That's a pretty good start for the decade.
0: I would say 1957, let's talk about uh, Otto the Terrible, Anatomy of a Murder. Now, this is an early 50s, and from what we're talking about, a lot of the same sensibility applied. Let's talk a little bit about about that film.
1: 59, Anatomy of a Murder. 59, okay, all right. 59, yeah. America's greatest film about uh, the system of trial by jury. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, more so than uh, Last Angry, uh, 12 Angry Men, for your opinion. I would say so. Okay, no, you
1: did. I, I would say so. I, would say I, I did, I did, did say so. I would say so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the thing about Anatomy of a Murder is it, Last Angry Men has a clear separation. No, 12 separation Angry Men. But last angry, angry was men. Paul
0: Muni. I, yeah, I know, I know. 12,
1: 12 Angry Men has a clear separation between good and bad and 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 good triumphs in the end Mm -hmm. and the innocent boy uh, gets off right because the the jury makes the right decision led by the the moral and upstanding henry fonda character Mm -hmm. right but anatomy of a murder (laughs) a guy who committed the murder gets off
2: right
1: and it asks questions about how does the system work and sometimes the jury system, for all its its um, virtues, a jury comes to the wrong decision. Sure. And that doesn't destroy or undermine the system. The system continues. Mm-hmm. It's a very ironic and sophisticated film because the bad guy gets off. I knew uh, Ben Gazzara later in life, and I mm-hmm. said, every time I see you, Mr. Gazzara, I feel you should be arrested for the crime that you <laughs> committed, the anatomy of a murder, because your character got away with it. With that ironic a, grin!
0: You know, he was—he uh, had an irresistible impulse, uh, an irresistible impulse. impulse. But he was a bad guy, and he oh, got definitely. away. Oh, definitely, and he got away with it. it. And he
1: got away with it. The jury made the wrong decision right. because they had a great lawyer. He had a great lawyer, the right lawyer. James Stewart, country James lawyer,
0: Stewart. right, pleading for him. You know, uh, so he also had the
1: perfect.
0: great Lee, the great Lee Remick, who falls into a category of female. Uh, that is, I. She was so sexy in that film. It, uh, you know, children should not have been allowed to watch it. I think I was 12 when I saw it. Fell in love with Lee Remick.
1: She, she was terrific, although she was not Reminger's first choice. It was
0: Lana Turner. Wow, you got lucky. Lana could have never done what Lee did, in my opinion.
1: Not not at that point, no. But then no. she was great in, the, in that same year. She was in the Imitation of Life. Imitation of she Life. Was fabulous.
0: Doug, Douglas, Douglas do. Cirque, I think, is more her uh, her range than uh, than Otto. Uh, Otto's amazing. But it's also, it may not have been the screen debut, debut of George C. Scott, but when he hits that courtroom, it's over. He just yeah, owns yeah. that film. Amazing. It's
1: terrific. Yeah. He's ter- it's a terrific film. Yeah, it, I watch it, it
0: frequently. Fortunately, we are about five minutes left. Oh, okay. What are some of the That's, other films? You know, we haven't talked my, about that. Let's show my book, terrence Oh, I'm sorry. So, oh, yeah, this is yes. not, this is audio so not video. I, yeah. I'm sorry. And oh, the book once oh. again is Hollywood and the Movies. Oh. Okay. Of the fifties. Uh, yeah. Oh, and for oh. some reason, I get better sound quality when we don't. Uh, but we're, we, we're seeing each other, so it makes it more dynamic. Oh, okay.
1: Oh, but but people just are hearing us; they're not looking. Well, at yeah. Us.
0: But when I when I promote it on my website, uh, the, the the book I did it last week. The book will be there. You'll be there. Uh, I okay. All all leading up to this. No, no. We we okay. we understand that. Mention it at least okay. three times in radio. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I have I have Thank one. You. I'm going to mention it one more time before we get off here. But were well, there sure. some films that I in the fifties that you loved that I didn't mention in those last five minutes that we have?
1: Well, um, uh, my, my my two favorite directors are Kazan, mm-hmm. Politics Aside, and Douglas Sirk, because I have a taste for that kind of high-octane melodrama. Mm-hmm. So I would say to, to your listeners, there are two films of the 50s that you...
2: No, I shut it
0: off.
1: There, yeah, there are two films of the 50s... Go ahead, I'm sorry, yeah. There are two films of the 50s that are essential viewing we haven't mentioned on the waterfront oh, right which i in my opinion is the single greatest film of the 50s also the best acted film i've ever seen
0: mm-hmm. and not, also, now don't overlook the performance of the bailiff who was my uncle leo Furstenberg. he's rarely credited oh. yeah yeah oh okay he was a lefty okay. he was a fellow traveler with kazan
1: really okay yeah. but, I, but,
0: I did, I did. That's a, a side I didn't one. know that. but I No, that, not everyone knows it, but I, I, I agree with
1: you. It's an amazing film. It's an amazing film. If, <clears throat> if you want to find out about method acting and you want to see an indelible performance, it's Marlon Brando's. I would say that's the performance of the 20th century in film. Kazan mm-hmm. thought that. He said, if there's a finer performance by an actor in an American film, I don't know of it. That's it. Mm-hmm. An imitation of life. Which is, in my mind, the greatest melodrama ever made, with an extraordinary performance from Lana Turner, who mm-hmm. couldn't have been as good as Lee Remick in *Anatomy of a Murder*, no. but who was fabulous.
0: Yeah. no, it Doug Douglas, sir. Vocalist. I mean, I, I look at Todd Haynes's work. You know, *Far from Heaven*, which so mirrored what he did, both in the, the color palette, you know, and the uh, the relationships. No, so uh, I, I probably he was somewhat miss. Unappreciated or less appreciated than he should be, given the genre he was at working the time, in. Yeah, exactly. Not the, now. I agree. At time. Now Absolutely. he has an enormous
1: reputation. At the time, the films were just dismissed as as weepies, yeah. poor handkerchief weepies. At the At
0: the, at the risk of seriously. getting in somebody else's book, you mentioned Kazan. Uh, my friend David Thompson refers to my life as, or yeah, my life, my life, right, as the Bible. Uh, maybe one of the great, maybe the finest cinematic autobiography that's been written.
1: I, I would agree with this. Is it Johnson, a life or from my life? I do. Yeah.
0: It's amazing. Yes. Well, my guest who's still with me for two more minutes is Foster yes. Hirsch. Yes. Hollywood yes. and the movies of the 50s. Uh, a, a final thought about the period, about, about the book.
1: A final thought is let's read the subtitle.
0: Mm-hmm. I, is, I got
1: the t- oh. subtitle. <laughs> which is very important. Which is very important because it gives the the, the breadth yes. of the book, the collapse of the studio system, the thrill of Cinerama, and the invasion of the ultimate body snatcher television.
0: A little tip of the that- hat to Don Siegel.
1: Yes, exactly, and that's one of the great films of the fifties, Invasion
0: right. of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Don, Don was uh, uh, astonishing. He, he did a follow-up to uh, Out of the Past uh, with uh, William Bendix and Patrick Knowles, uh, The Big Steel. Yes, yes, we which is shot sort in.
1: of overlooked, isn't it? It's so yeah, it's I think been so. Overlooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Australia. a lot of those
0: films were overlooked at the time uh, when I think they looked at film noir as just being well, they were inexpensive. They had to have the money uh you know and then you had a whole style of lighting and Musaraka and, and all of these wonderful uh uh cinematographers although if you go way back you look at james wong Howe and look at his the arc of that career what an astonishing career
1: that's astonishing yeah. yeah astonishing but in all genres not just film war everything
0: oh yeah everything. oh no that's amazing when you look at what he did well also once again we're almost out of time it's been a pleasure I hope we can catch up at some point in the future. Yes. If you I, come I, to Paris, I, I let me know I was when you're coming to Paris. Well, you, you should have called me because we'll do an event I, when you come. <laughs> we'll do a live event. I'm oh, sure. Great. I was just there. Okay. I was just there. Okay. Month. Well, we'll we'll definitely do that. Once again, Foster Hirsch, Hollywood and the movies of the '50s, the collapse of the studio system, the thrill of Cinerama, invasion of the body snatcher, television. Once again, thank you and uh, best regards to Brooklyn. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. And subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.